Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. The dollar was broadly weaker today with the dollar index closing down 85 to 94.78, although I saw it trading down as low as about 94.40 earlier this morning. It was down well over a full point. And at that time, gold was up about $18, silver up about 25 cents. And then all of a sudden, New York Fed President William Dudley, just in an interview on Fox Business, basically said that a September rate hike was still possible. A September rate hike was still possible. Now, look, I mean, a September alien invasion is still possible, but I'm not going to waste my time preparing for it. What's amazing to me is is how all of the villagers still cry, still come running every time a Fed official cries wolf. I mean, haven't they noticed that they've been crying wolf over and over again and there's never a wolf? I mean, it doesn't matter. In fact, I think that Dudley purposely came out and said that it's still possible that the Fed may raise rates in September just to keep the markets in check, just to preserve the false narrative that there's actually recovery and that the Fed could actually raise interest rates, which it can't do because there is no real recovery. There's just a bubble. But they don't want to admit that. And by just simply raising the possibility of a September rate hike, all of a sudden gold sold off. In fact, gold went from up 18 bucks to up maybe two or three dollars. Silver went negative. It lost its entire rally in a matter of minutes. And the dollar recovered better than a third of its losses simply at the mention of the possibility of a September rate hike that nobody actually believes is going to happen. Yet it influenced the markets. And I believe that was the the goal that I think he was trying to undo the damage done overnight by his counterpart over in San Francisco, uh, the president of the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank, John Williams. So you have uh, dueling bankers expressing somewhat opposite uh, opinions. But the one by uh, John Williams, this was a well thought out. Uh, written uh, piece as opposed to an off-the-cuff remark in an interview where he just uh, repeats a talking point about the possibility of a rate hike. This is an actual paper where uh, Williams thought about each word and wrote it down and probably had several drafts before he published it. And so obviously I think that uh, the the paper would carry a lot more weight. And of course, that's probably why the dollar never really, uh, you know, recovered its losses. I mean, it, it drifted lower after its knee-jerk bounce, but still finished, you know, well off on the day. Gold still managed to be up about seven or eight bucks. Maybe it recouped almost half 
of uh, the gain that it had prior to that statement. And it certainly took the momentum out of the gold stocks because prior to the Dudley comment, the gold stocks were set to open at new highs. If you looked at the where the GDX was trading, XAU pre-market, we would have opened at new highs. Instead, the markets opened flat, and I think we, we, we closed slightly down on the day. Some of the gold stocks were up, some were down, despite the rise in gold. And I think what dampened the sentiment for the gold stocks were the Dudley comment. But what is far more important is what Williams wrote and what the markets were initially reacting to before uh, they, they got that, uh, that, that statement coming out, out of Dudley. And what Williams wrote in his piece was that he believes that we're in some kind of a new era. And of course, he doesn't understand that the new era that we're in is the consequence, the collateral damage from the central banks. It's not just some kind of weird thing that's happening where we have slow growth and low productivity. Uh, it's because of the central bankers. But because the central bankers don't know that, they think it's just some random occurrence that needs a new government prescription. And what John Williams is proposing is that based on these this new reality, the new normal, the the real rate of interest or the neutral rate of interest, and that is an interest rate that is neither stimulative or accommodative, right? That the that rate is now so low that it's almost impossible for the central banks to get there, I, I guess absent negative interest rates. And so what Williams is proposing is that in order to get lower interest rates, that we get more inflation, right? So that we can have uh, a lower real rate by having a higher inflation rate. So what he really is ar arguing is that we should scrap this 2% inflation target, that we actually need to have a higher number. Now, he didn't say how much higher, two and a half, three, four. I'm not really sure, but he said that two is too low and we need something higher. Now, I've been saying for years that this was going to happen. Remember, I said that this was going to be just like the unemployment rate, where they first said, well, we'll raise interest rates if unemployment gets below 6.5%, and then we let it go below 5 We kept moving that goalpost. And I said the same thing was going to happen to inflation, and in fact, it is happening. In fact, if you look at the CPI numbers that just came out today, I mean, we continue to be above the 2% level on the core. Uh, we've been there for many, many months in a row, and now they're already starting to say, hey, wait a minute. 2% isn't high enough. We actually need more inflation because we have to have lower real rates. And the only way to get there when you're at the zero bound is to have higher inflation. So that is what they're arguing for. This is what I've been expecting. And in addition to that, if you read what, what he was advocating, that one of the ways that we should get there is for the Fed to target nominal GDP, in other words, not real GDP, which is GDP after you adjust for inflation, right? They always have a deflator, which I've argued is under uh, counting inflation and therefore overestimating GDP growth. What the Fed is saying is, who cares about the GDP deflator? It doesn't even matter. All we care about is the nominal number. We don't care if the growth is real or inflationary. We just want to target it. We just want nominal GDP numbers to go up. Well, what good is that? I mean, nobody benefits 
from phony GDP growth that is simply a byproduct of inflation. The whole point is that we want the economy to actually grow, not just prices to go up. But what the Fed is saying or what Williams is writing is, no, all we care about is prices going up. It's all about form over substance. That's the only recovery we want. Well, that's why we're stuck in this malaise. That's why we have this new normal. It's because of Fed guys uh, like John Williams. And also, get this, what Williams was also arguing for was more fiscal stimulus. He was saying that, you know, we're kind of at the end of our rope here at the Fed. You know, we've got interest rates way down practically at zero. We need more stimulus and we need the government to provide it in the form of deficit spending. So he's arguing that government should run larger deficits. Now, look, we've already got about a $20 trillion national debt. I mean, if deficit spending were stimulative, I mean, why didn't we get a huge stimulus from that $20 trillion of debt? The problem is that $20 trillion is an anchor weighing down the economy. And what Williams is saying is we need another anchor. That anchor is not heavy enough. We need a bigger one. We need even more government spending because he somehow thinks that by running larger deficits, it's somehow going to stimulate the economy. It's not. It's going to further stifle the economy. The more the Fed stimulates the economy, the more the economy is sedated. You know, eventually, of course, the economy is a corpse and they keep trying to stimulate it anyway. They don't even realize that they've killed the patient. But that is exactly what is what is going on. And of course, if we run even bigger deficits based on what the what the Fed is advocating, how are we going to finance them? Because the Fed also wants to keep interest rates low. Well, if the government tries to borrow a lot more money, let's say we run the national debt or the budget deficit up to one and a half or two trillion dollars a year. Well, who's going to buy all those treasuries? Well, obviously, it's going to be the Fed. So what Williams is really advocating when he says we need bigger deficit spending, right? We want the government to sell more bonds, but we also want to keep interest rates low. He's advocating for more quantitative easing because the only way to enable all these big deficits is if the Federal Reserve prints the money and buys the bonds. So without saying he wants to do QE4, that's exactly what he's advocating. More quantitative easing. And he talked about interest rates, and he said that they have to stay lower for longer. And if you read this paper, uh, Williams basically thinks that not only should the Fed not hike rates this year, but they shouldn't hike rates in the next several years to keep uh, interest rates lower for longer. This is what this guy is advocating. Now, I don't know how many other people at the Fed share this opinion. I suppose a lot of people are going to be looking at Janet Yellen to see what she says over at Jackson Hole. I think she's there next week. We also get the Fed minutes tomorrow, and people will be parsing through those words for any indication as to whether more people are siding with uh, Williams over on the left coast or uh, Dudley on, on the east coast talking about the fact that a rate hike is still a possibility. Although, again, just mentioning that it's possible that rates might go up isn't the same thing as advocating that they're going to go up or saying it's a probability that, they, that they're going to go up or that they should go up. It's simply throwing out the remote possibility that it could happen. But there's a lot of crazy things that could happen that are not going to happen. And what's the point of talking about all the remote possibilities that might happen in September You know, when they're not going to happen? Again, this is part of the Fed's open mouth operation. It's big stick policy of, of, of talking loudly 
to make up for the fact that it's got no stick. All this stuff is happening, but nobody really seems to have figured it out yet. But this policy, if this is if this becomes reality, this this isn't just some kind of uh, exercise, just a, a an advocacy or some kind of paper that is a you know more of a, a, a just out there as literature or some type of essay but actually becomes new fed policy which i think is going to happen then the bottom is going to drop out of the dollar i mean this is going to be a route i mean what happened today is just a small taste of what will happen if and when this policy becomes reality, when this becomes this gets adopted, where we take the inflation target and toss it or increase it, when we we have these bigger deficits, and I think they're coming. I mean, there's no question that they're coming after the next election if we don't get a taste of it before the election. It doesn't even matter who wins at this point. I mean, everybody is advocating more borrowing and more spending. I mean, even Donald Trump, he talks about, oh, interest rates are so low. Well, let's take advantage of that by borrowing a bunch of money and spending it on infrastructure. Well, if we borrow a bunch of money the way the government is currently borrowing it, it's short-term money. And so when interest rates go up, we won't be able to afford to service the, the debt that was borrowed when interest rates were low. Now, maybe Donald Trump's plan is to borrow a bunch of money, but do it with issuing 30-year bonds. The problem is there's nobody who wants to buy those 30-year bonds. Nobody in the private sector would touch them. Who's going to lend money to the U.S. government for 30 years? So the only potential buyer of paper that toxic uh, would be the Federal Reserve. Uh, But something like that is is very inflationary and very weak for the dollar. But certainly Hillary Clinton is going to run uh, bigger deficits, especially if we begin her term in a recession. Because remember how big Obama's deficits were at the beginning of his, his term, and they only went down because the Fed created a new bubble. But if this bubble bursts just as he gets out of Dodge and you know Hillary Clinton or maybe Donald Trump or whoever becomes the next president, the next deficits are going to be much bigger than the ones that uh, Obama basically inherited from Bush. And then if the government deliberately sets out to stimulate the economy by making the enormous deficits even bigger, then we could have one and a half to two trillion dollar a year budget deficits, which is going to require something like 200 billion a month in quantitative easing to sustain, right? Maybe two to three times as big as QE3. And this is a enormous game changer in the foreign exchange markets, in the precious metals markets. This is, you know, talking about let the letting the inflation genie out of the bottle. I mean, there's not even going to be a pretense that we're ever going to try to bottle her up again. I mean, she's going to be out for good uh, running amok. And that is precisely what I have been talking about, what I have been warning about for years, all the things that I have been saying. In fact, I was warning about this stuff before the financial crisis of 2008, because what I was talking about and writing about in 2005 and 2006 was that after the housing bubble burst, and the Fed tried to stimulate the economy again with more cheap money, that this is exactly that where we would end up, that the policy would fail, and because it failed, they would do it bigger and better, and, and then the cycle would continue. What I didn't necessarily anticipate way back then 
is the number of people who would actually fall for this nonsense, the number of people who would conclude prematurely that the Fed's policy actually worked, even though it was an abject failure. And it's only because it failed that they're doing it again. But not only will these bankers not recognize the failure, but they look at the consequences of their own monetary malpractice. They look at what's happening, look at this sick patient, and they don't make the connection between their, what they're doing and the, the lack of health of the patient. They just say, well, this is the new normal. This is just how it is. And therefore, we need even more of this medicine because now we have this patient that's, that's sick you know, because of the, it's the new normal. He, and they don't recognize that there's nothing normal about the patient after they've, you know, injected it with all this monetary heroin. This is what you would expect. The economy is acting the way you would expect it to act as a result of all the things that the Fed and other central banks have done. But since the Fed doesn't make the connection between the mistakes that it's made and the morbid economy that it has produced, it actually thinks that it's a toxic sedative was a stimulus, but now when the patient isn't responding, it simply says, well, this must be some kind of new normal, and therefore we have to do the same Keynesian stimulus. We have to do it even bigger. And since you know it's harder for the central bank now, well, now we just need more inflation. We need, we need help uh, from the governments. We need bigger deficits. Not even understanding that we got into this mess because of all the debt. We had a financial crisis because we had too much debt. We had too low interest rates. And now the Fed says, well, we need interest rates even lower. We need even more debt because they don't want to acknowledge the reality of the problem or their role in creating it. Now, in the last podcast, I talked about Donald Trump's big economic speech. Well, in the last several days, Hillary Clinton gave a economic speech of her own. And of course, if you listen to Hillary's speech, most of it boiled down to, you know, vote for me and I'll steal for you. It was all about redistributive policies. It was all class warfare. It was all about soaking the rich and raising taxes on the rich and then giving the money to the more deserving middle class and the poor. In fact, in particular, I spoke about Donald Trump's advocacy of the elimination of the estate tax. And I talked about the way he was being attacked and vilified for that, as if, you know, he's just a defender of the rich and he's doing this to benefit his own estate and his own his own children. And I'm not going to repeat everything I said in that last podcast. In fact, if you haven't listened to it, I would recommend you go back and listen to my last podcast. And, you know, I noticed it didn't get as many uh, listens or at least views on YouTube anyway as the typical one. I normally get about 30,000 views, and this one got a little over 20,000. And maybe maybe people aren't li- as interested in a political topic as they are about an economic topic. Well, the inheritance tax is very much economics. I mean, it's a lot of politics, but the effect is tremendous damage to the economy. But if you didn't listen to that, Listen to it, uh, because there's a lot of good information there about the destructive nature of the estate tax. But Hillary Clinton did exactly what I said people were going to do is say, ha ha, Trump, he's just trying to reduce his own taxes. And when Hillary Clinton was talking about that, she said that Donald Trump 
you know, if you believe what he says, he's worth $10 billion and, you know, his kids are going to inherit this money and he wants to eliminate the estate tax and save his heirs $5 billion. And then Hillary said something like, we can think of much better uses for that money. Yes, of course, of course she can. You know, a thief can always think of better uses for his victim's money. Yes, here's some rich guy and he's got money that he earned and that is his and he's going to spend it on himself or his family, but I can think of better uses for that money because I want it for myself. I want to spend his money on my family. I want to buy the things I want for me, right? It's always better. Anybody can think of a better use of somebody else's money, but the problem is that's theft. You're not entitled to a better use of somebody else's money. You want some money, you have to go out and earn it. Well, not if you have Hillary Clinton, she'll steal it for you. And, you know, most people would acknowledge that stealing is wrong. I mean, if you're walking down the street and there's another guy walking down the street and it looks like he's got, you know, a lot of money in his wallet or something, you can't steal it because you can think of better uses for that money than whatever he's going to do with it. People would say, yes, that's wrong. At least most people would say that. Not all people. A lot of people would just steal the wallet. But somehow the people that think that theft is wrong when you substitute a politician as a middleman and you send a politician to steal money because you have better uses for it, then somehow people people condone theft. But that is exactly what is going on here. And that is the lowest common denominator politics that she is playing into the idea that it's not fair that the Trump kids are going to inherit all this money. We should take it away from them because after all, they didn't earn it. Forget about the fact that their father earned it or their grandfather earned it and they have the right to do with that money what they please. Forgetting about that, let's just take the money because we can get you know cheaper college tuition or less expensive health care or whatever it is, whatever goodie that Hillary Clinton is promising people to vote for her, but it's basically theft. And the problem is by making theft okay, right? By, by, by saying it's okay to steal as long as you do it through the ballot box, right? As long as you do it dem- democratically, then it's okay. That is dumbing down the morality of, of our nation. I mean, and that's why you see stuff like what's going on or what happened a couple of days ago in Milwaukee, you know, it's just this lawlessness. It's this it's this blurring of the of the lines between right and wrong. And a lot of it starts by politicians promising to steal. If you'll only vote for them, they'll steal for you. And then once you go down that line, once you once you make excuses and rationalize theft and say, yes, theft is okay, so long as we do it a certain way, well then, you know, your whole society decays. But you know, one of the things that really aggravates me about what happened in Milwaukee. And first of all, if you don't know what happened in Milwaukee, right, there was a a policeman who happened to be an African-American policeman, although they didn't release the uh, that fact until the following day. But he shot a armed African-American suspect, shot him and killed him. Now, the suspect was in possession of a stolen handgun. And a lot of stolen ammunition. Apparently, the, uh, the, the suspect had a lot more ammunition than the policeman. And the policeman knew that he was armed. He had a gun. And the policeman asked the suspect to drop the gun. And he didn't do it. Now, if a policeman asks you to drop your gun, you drop your gun. 
right? Because if I'm a policeman and I tell somebody to drop their gun and they don't drop it, what am I supposed to think? Hey, he's not dropping his gun. Well, he must meet, that must be because he's going to use it. Because either you give yourself up or you shoot it out. So if you're not dropping your gun, you're telling the cop, hey, it's you or me, right? This is going to be a shootout because I'm not dropping my gun and raising my arms. You're not taking me to jail. And so I'm keeping my gun. And so if a policeman tells you to drop your gun and you don't drop it and you get shot, whose fault is that? It's not the policeman's fault. You think he's not going to shoot you once you've told him that, you know, you're going to shoot him by not dropping your gun when he tells you to? So in any event, you have you have a, a criminal who has stolen a gun, who knows what he's going to do with that stolen gun, ends up being shot because he refuses to drop his weapon when he's told to by the police. And apparently the news of this criminal being shot incited riots, right? They're burning down stores, they're looting, protesting violence, all of this supposedly because of the frustration and the outrage of all the oppression that is going on uh, in Milwaukee or in the country. But that's not what's going on. None of this is going on. What happens is you've got a bunch of thugs. You've got a bunch of criminals that are looking for an excuse to do harm. They're looking for an excuse to incite riots. They're looking for an excuse to go out and steal and vandalize. And when they find out that some a black guy's been shot. Oh, okay. A black guy's been shot by a policeman. Okay. This is the excuse we're waiting for. Let's go out. Let's start stealing. Let's create mayhem. Let's loot. Let's vandalize. Right. It doesn't matter what the facts are. It doesn't matter what this uh, black individual was doing or why he was shot. Or I guess the fact that he was shot by a black policeman didn't even matter either. Just the fact that a policeman shoots uh, a black, even though he happened to be armed, and that fact was out there, it didn't say he was unarmed, he, he was armed, but that was enough to start the riots and the looting. And then you have all these politicians that come on television and make excuses for the rioters or the looters. I mean, they don't condone the violence, but they, they excuse the motivation by saying they're motivated out of repression, and this is their only way they can fight back into a racist, oppressive society. Whenever they do that, all they're doing is guaranteeing the next time a policeman has to shoot a black suspect, it's going to be another riot. People are always looking for an excuse to do bad things. Don't turn this into some kind of political protest. And it makes me sick when I see these people on television legitimizing just theft and criminal behavior by a bunch of thugs. They, there should be no attempt to rationalize what is going on. It just needs to be condemned because that's the only way to try to prevent it from happening again. Now, I will recognize that there are serious problems in the inner cities, but have these discussions apart from this violence. And of course, all of the problems, the high uh, incarceration rate, among young people, particularly, you know, African-American males, young males, the widespread unemployment in, in that community as well. These, these situations, this exists because of government, because of the welfare state, because of the war on drugs. So let's have these issues. Yes, I understand you have young men with no jobs that are, have been raised by their mothers with no fathers, and they're wild. Why is this? Why were they raised 
uh, without fathers and why are why and their mother didn't have a job. They were raised by a mother who lived on welfare with an absentee father. They they were indoctrinated in government schools and learned nothing. And they don't have a trade, they have no education, and they can't get a job because of government regulation and government rules. So yes, government has created this toxic situation that does result in a lot of criminal behavior. These are homegrown criminals in a government laboratory. And now we can see the result of this government experiment uh, of the war on poverty and the great society. And it is a complete disaster. So yeah, we need to do something about it, but we have to separate that from the condemnation of these kind of acts of violence and criminality. Otherwise, you've got people just sitting around waiting for the next shooting, and so they can use that as an excuse to do what they want to do anyway, which is go out and steal some stuff, right? Rob some stores, have fun, you know, burn burn some stores down in your own neighborhood. The fact that we don't get the, the right type of condemnation this is the real, real tragedy. And this kind of stuff is going gonna, is gonna to keep on happening, unfortunately. You know, I wanted to mention, too, one more thing. I forgot one of the uh, pieces of economic data that happened to come out recently that I didn't get to comment on that was uh, much, uh, much weaker than expected was the retail sales number. And that came out on Friday. And, of course, everybody is talking about how we've got this, uh, you know, consumer-led recovery, and they all expect to see it. Uh, in retail sales. And people were looking for an increase of 0.4%. And ex-autos, they were looking for an increase of 0.2%. And what did we end up getting? We got flat. We got zero uh, increase in retail sales unchanged. And ex-autos, we actually got a drop of 03 And in fact, even ex-autos and ex-gas, we got a drop of 0.1%. They were expecting an increase of 0.3. So weaker than expected. In fact, I read an article today about container volumes at the port of Long Beach. They're off over 7% from July of last year. That is a significant decrease uh, in, in imports. And of course, if you're betting on consumer spending, right, because we don't produce, consumers can't buy what we don't import. And if the container volume is down sharply year over year, then what is that telling you about spending? It's down as well. And of course, a lot of that had to do with the bloated level of inventories. If businesses have a lot of inventory, they don't need to buy new merchandise because they still haven't sold the old merchandise that they never should have bought when they when they when they loaded up their inventory, which was skewing up the GDP numbers from the prior year. All of this was stuff that I was talking about, and all the things that I was talking about the last several years are now becoming a reality. And I think that as more and more data comes out, as the truth begins to emerge from beneath all the lies, you're going to start to see the markets reacting in a much bigger way. We're going to start to see an even more rapid decline in the value of the dollar relative to other currencies. We're going to see an increase in the escalation in the curve of gold and silver prices. In fact, I think other commodity prices, oil, oil, you know, got down below $40 a barrel last week. Now it's back above 47. Many of the oil stocks that we own are now hitting new 52-week highs. Many of the Canadian trusts, it seems to me that we have seen a bottom in this sector and that the stocks are anticipating the rise in crude prices, just like the gold stocks anticipated the rise in, in gold prices. So I think this is turning, look at some of the emerging markets that have been 
really hammered in the past several years based on the threat of a higher dollar, higher U.S. interest rates and falling commodity prices. All this is reversing all the all the markets that were damaged based on the expectation of a tighter Fed and a stronger dollar. Now the markets are recovering ground they never should have lost because all those expectations are proving to have been false. I knew they were false all along, but people are just beginning to figure it out. Only at this point, they haven't even barely scratched the surface to the extent to which they were wrong on their assumptions. Because it's not just that the Fed isn't going to be as aggressive as everybody thought with their rate hikes. They're done hiking. We're going to have a new round of quantitative easing, a new round of monetary stimulus that is going to dwarf the stimulus that preceded it. And as bad as the economy is now, that's how much worse it's going to get as a result of this even larger dose of stimulus, which I have been saying, you know, since the beginning, this is going to be the lethal dose. This is the dose of stimulus that finally kills us. We overdose on stimulus and there's not that much time left. I don't think to prepare for this. I can see it in the markets. I can see it in these flows. So if you're still sitting on the sidelines, if you're still waiting uh, for the right time, the time to wait is long since passed. Now is the time to act while you still have that chance. Attention listeners, I have an urgent message for you. We're in the middle of a war. The global conflict is destroying the lives of millions without a single bomb being dropped. It's called the International Currency War, and your bank account has been drafted to fight. The victims in this conflict are our currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound. They're all heading to zero as irresponsible central banks compete to see who can print the most the fastest. But there's one form of money politicians and central banks can't destroy, gold. Today, it's more important than ever to understand the value of gold in your portfolio and to keep a close eye on major market developments. Subscribe to my monthly video cast and you'll be the first to hear my latest analysis on gold investing and the currency wars. Visit goldvideocast.com right now to subscribe for free. I call the dot-com bust, then the housing bust, and I advise clients to diversify into foreign equities and hard assets while the rest of Wall Street laughed at me. Now I want to keep you up to date on the next crisis that is brewing. My gold video cast also includes personal interviews I've conducted with other contrarian investors like Jim Rickards and Axel Merck. Gold has gone up 256% since 2003, but it has a lot further to go. Don't miss the rally. You can prosper during this time of currency wars, but only if you stay educated. Get a free subscription to my gold videocast at goldvideocast.com. That's goldvideocast.com. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.